0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. And That was beautiful. Thank you guys. Well, good morning. Let's get into the Word. If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to use one of the chair Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. If you're using that Bible, that's on page 675, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, as always, you're welcome to take that Bible and just keep it as your own. We've been working our way through this New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, a church that he founded a few years years before he wrote this letter, and we have uh, been in the middle of his chapters about their abuses on the spiritual gifts, 12, 13, and 14. And today we're going to handle the entirety of chapter 13, uh, which is, I'm sure, a very familiar passage to you, even if you've not got much church time in you. I mean, you've been to a few weddings, at least. And certainly this love chapter, as it is called often, has been read at a wedding, And uh, so we sometimes tend to uh, think of these words that we're about to read today, these 13 verses, as signifying the love between a man and a woman, but in reality, they're not that. They are, uh, of course, it applies to all love, but they are primarily aimed at a community of people, a local church, who are mistreating one another through their misuse of the spiritual gifts that God has given them. And so this chapter sort of forms the meat of Paul's underlying argument that they are to treat one another and use the gifts, whatever gifts God has given him, for the sake of one another in the context of a local church. I have two tensions here today as we read this chapter. The first is is that I don't want to make this, this, this study, this dive into this beautiful chapter an academic experience, you know. I mean, I've got some things to say. I've got... I've got a few principles that I want to draw out, and we've got some doctrine that I think we want to consider, but but here's the danger of, of, of being a little too academic or, or um, teachy, so to speak, and when you look at this, especially any text, but especially this text, is that we're talking about the love of God and the love that should permeate a, a, a family of Christ. And so it, this really doesn't lend itself to a sort of clinical academic approach. You know, I mean, how do you quantify this thing called love? And then then my second tension is that I, I don't want to look at love as sort of detached from the gospel, detached from God and His love for us in Christ on the cross and what He has done for us to redeem us. And And so this isn't just some sort of, study of a human characteristic that we should conjure up. In fact, we can't do that. It, it, we can't just in and of ourselves be more loving. It's a gift that God has to give us that then we have to fan into to a fire. And so let's not, let's not disconnect, which often happens at weddings. Let's not disconnect love from what the team just sang about the deep, deep love of Jesus, the deep love of God. In Christ, Christ for His people, and so um, I need you to pray for me as I pray here in just a moment that God will help us. And listen, we're not—we want to be warmed by the love of God today. And how do you how do you get warm? You know, if you're out in the cold, if you're in Dahlonega, Georgia, in Ranger School, and it's January and it's cold, right? You've been there, a couple of you guys, and it's cold. What do you do? Do you just do you do you just sort of start thinking warm thoughts? Or do you go to the fire? Which actually the ranger instructors don't actually let you burn a fire. But if there were a fire, you would go to the fire. You'd get close to the fire. That's how you get warm, man. You don't don't get warm. Your affections don't get stirred by just thinking about things. You actually have to go to it. And so there's this fire in the scripture of God's love today. And I want us to just get close to it. I just want to get us warmed by the fire i want it to stir our affections for jesus today that's my goal and for some of you that are christians i want it to stir our love for one another and i and i i am certain listen to me clearly because I, I don't want to just get here and preach through chapter 13 and be done with a little tidy sermon and then fool you about your state with the lord there are some of you in this room today that do not know christ you're not christians You may think you are, but you're not, or you may realize that you aren't, and you're here investigating Christianity. We are so glad that you're here today. But listen, today is not so much just about some sort of silo of life called love. It is about the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ. And I pray that today, even as we're talking about what a family of Christ should look like, that your affections will be stirred, and that you will turn from sin and that you will turn from worthless idols, and that you will turn and trust towards Jesus. That's what I want you to do today. And I pray that you will be warmed by the fire of God's love in Christ on the cross. Well, let me pray, then I'll read, and then we'll work through this chapter. Lord, thank you for these beautiful words, for this day when we can gather and sing about you, and think about you, and respond to you through your word that you have given us. Lord, we realize that there's more than just going on in this room, than just people and their intellect and my abilities, as meager as they may be, to teach and preach. And the written word, as powerful as it is, there is, as we've been studying, the blessed power and presence of your Holy Spirit that not only gifts us, but enlightens us, it warms us, it gives us a sense of your presence. And Lord, you, by your Holy Spirit, you come and you melt hearts of ice, and you warm our hearts so that we might be soft and sensitive to you. And so, God, I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you would rouse and stir our affections for Jesus. I pray that Christians that are in this room who are tired and unloving, much like myself often, I pray that we would be stirred in our affections for you and your people. I pray that people in this room who do not know you, or that they would pass from death to life which is the greatest act of love of all, that you would bring people to life through your gospel. And I pray that you do these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let me read. I'm just going to read through the chapter, and then we'll go back through and break it up. I have just five observations from this chapter, and we're going to read, I think, a lot of scripture today. But let me read through because it is so beautiful, and then work back through it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, these are beautiful words. Gordon Fee, the well-known commentator on First Corinthians says, Let the preacher beware, lest too much analysis detract from the sheer beauty and power of this chapter. I want us to look at five things that I see in this text about love. But before we do that, let's remember the context of this chapter. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 exist as a sort of unit where Paul is correcting the Corinthians about their use or their misuse of spiritual gifts. What has happened is God has gifted this church very much with lots of wisdom, lots of affluent people. Uh, People are coming to the gospel to the Lord from all different walks of life. And he's given them spiritual gifts that Paul lists some of them. It's not an exhaustive list, but he lists some of them in chapter 12. One of the gifts in particular that it seemed like the Corinthian church was sort of tangling up and misusing sort of for their own propping up was the gift of tongues. And Paul is encouraging them not to use their spiritual gifts as sort of a means of propping themselves up, but to edify the body. And so he... He sort of puts the meat between these two pieces of bread to form this sandwich of what he's teaching them, this idea of love, how everything that a church does should operate in love. And so next week we're going to get into chapter 14, and I know some of you have been eagerly anticipating us really chopping up what this gift of tongues is, and so we're going to get into that in chapter 14, and we'll take two messages to get through 14. We're going to look specifically at the gift of tongues and then specifically at the gift of prophecy and how these things should operate in the church. But in this chapter, he, he almost interrupts his instruction or correction of them with this treatise or this, this beautiful sort of passage or poem on love. So let's look again at uh, verse 1, 2, and 3. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Now, that's just more than just some of you that grew up in the 70s. Remember the gong show or the, what was it? They had the, I don't know, was it called the gong show? Um, and so that's kind of what we think uh, of when we think of the gong show or, or, or a gong. But what, what the gong or a symbol was used in pagan worship at the time. And so remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the meat sacrificed to idols and how this Corinthian church is right in the middle of a pagan culture. And this pagan culture was oftentimes uh, sacrificing the meat in the local butcher shop to idols. And so there's this whole issue in the Corinthian church of of, of uh, whether or not they should eat this steak. And he's saying, oh, go ahead and do it, but just don't, you know, be a stumbling block to your brother. And then in this context, he's talking about if, if they even have this gift of tongues, what they, which they are using to sort of prop themselves up, but it doesn't... It's not undergirded by love. It's no better. It's not just a gong. He's not just grabbing a word picture out of nowhere. He's actually comparing them to the pagan worship festivals of their time. And he says that even if you have this gift, but it's not undergirded by love, you're just a, a, a symbol banging noisily in the streets. Verse 2 And if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and even deliver up my body to be burned, to be martyred, but have not love, I gain nothing. From these three verses, we see a couple of things. We see a juxtaposition of what the Corinthians thought it was to be spiritual. They viewed spirituality as having some gift, probably in particular tongues. But Paul viewed what it meant to be spiritual in terms of how loving the Corinthian church was. So it gives me a Pause here. It makes me think about a couple of things. Number one, these these are sobering thoughts. Number one is that it's possible to be very gifted and lack love. It's possible to be very gifted and lack love. Just because a person can operate in some spiritual gift or seem to have some sort of pronounced ability by God, whatever that may be, and let's not classify spiritual gifting as just things that are in use when we gather together on Sunday mornings or when Christians gather together. I think what sometimes we tend to limit God's gifting to just things like preaching or teaching or singing or some sort of sort of public worship-gathered ministry. But if you have some gift, you could be a great leader. You could have great gifts of administration. You, you can have tremendous amounts of blessing by God, but, but it's, it's very possible as seems to be the case in the Corinthian church to be very very gifted but not have love and that brings us to the second sort of very sobering and in fact even chilling truth that just sort of jumps out from these few verses here: that gifts are not necessarily evidence of spiritual maturity or even salvation. Gifts are not necessarily evidence of any particular maturity or even salvation. Just because God may give a person a particular gift and they're a Christian, whether it be great ability to speak and exhort and maybe preach, doesn't mean that that person's maturity is necessarily where it needs to be. And and evidently, God was giving the gift of tongues to these Corinthians, but they were turning this gift from God inward and using it for their own sort of self-glory rather than the edification of the church. And in fact, and this is, Very sobering because don't we sort of prop up people that seem to be gifted as as seemingly sort of on a higher level with God, but actually, and this is sobering, in fact, chilling is that Jesus in Matthew chapter seven. In fact, let me read this. He even seems to insinuate that a a great gift might not even be evidence that you are even saved, that you're even a Christian. Listen to Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven and verse twenty-one. He says, "He says, listen to these. These are chilling words." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? It's one of the gifts that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's sobering, isn't it? Gifts. It's possible to be gifted and have no love. Let's take it a step further. It's possible to be gifted and very immature. In fact, it's possible to be gifted and, and actually operate in some sort of gift from God and not even be a Christian, evidently. These are, as I mentioned, these are chilling verses. In other words, it's possible to do it seems to be a very Christian thing, to be used by God in a mighty way, but completely miss the boat completely have the wrong heart and motivation and I, listen I, I i read these verses and i don't think of you guys i think of myself in other words let me just contextualize this for my life it's possible to pastor a church a growing vibrant church where everybody's excited about the bible and the gospel and, and maybe not even be a christian now, I, I think I'm a Christian. I'm pretty sure. I want, you to, I want you to take a little bit of comfort in the fact that the pastor of your church is, is is very likely born again. That would be a positive, actually. But but do you see how these words should... Like, we shouldn't just be people that, oh, yeah, that's, that's written to somebody else. No, these words, these words are written to us as well. These, what is the core of our motivation in anything that we do for the Lord is... I mean, it's very easy to sort of subconsciously shift into self-promotion and just sort of subliminally chalk it up as as work for God. We've got to guard our hearts. What's the motivation of what we're doing? Is it so that we might make much of ourselves or is it that God might use us as a sort of conduit of His blessing for for the exaltation of God and His glory? Oh, they're chilling words. I mean, there's people that are, I've never cast out a demon. I've, I've never done that. And yet there were people evidently that would come to Jesus in that day and that he would say, you know, you, you, this this, the center of this was you. And in fact, God even used their giftedness to accuse them because even though they were used in mighty ways at the core of their, of their operation of this gift, at the bottom of that, the idol that they were serving was themselves in their own glory. It's a sobering thought. Gifts are not necessarily evidence of spiritual maturity or even salvation. I think, and I say this with a lot of humility and even some uh, self-examination, much of what passes as American contemporary Christianity, I think at the very core of it, is selfish idolatry. Uh, We just want to make much of ourselves. I think pastors in particular are guilty of this. We judge ourselves by how many people are coming. And we're envious of people who have more people coming to their church. It's justification by numbers. And at the core of that, it's just we want to make much of ourselves. And and all of us are guilty of it too. We want to to go to churches oftentimes where, where we are made much of. And sometimes we run from church to church or we don't connect with the body because because maybe in that particular church that we went to, we didn't feel like we were quite made much of. Friends, guard your heart from that. We want to be drawn to a flame where God has made much of. You know the best place for us to be is where God has made much of. Because when God has made much of, that is the best thing for a human soul, man. It is the best thing. It is all that ultimately satisfies. Not when we're propped up, but when God is propped up. And we we need to, well, we don't we don't just get that lesson and have it down and move on to other stuff. That's a thing that we will, if you've heard that before, I'm glad you will hear it again hear we need to hear that over and over and over again john calvin the great reformer said that the human heart is an idol factory and we're constantly producing idols and usually we are we are that idol we need to continually hear that uh, what we're doing here is to make much of jesus not ourselves third thought that comes from just these first three verses is that love must be primary in the life of a church love must be primary Paul says that you can do all these things, you can have this great gift of tongues, you can have prophetic powers, you can have this deep wisdom and knowledge, you can have faith that moves mountains, you can give everything you have, you can have this tremendous generosity that actually at its core can dead end on you because you wouldn't be made much of by your generosity, you can even give up your body to be burned. But if you have love, it means nothing. So lo- love must be primary in the life of a church. A couple of verses to just help us uh, dwell on this thought: Philippians two verses three and four. Paul writes to another church, the Philippians. He says, "Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." He writes to the Romans in chapter twelve and verse ten. He says, "Love one another with." brotherly affection outdo one another and showing honor. Just think about the subversive competition that's going on there in that verse. Instead of, instead of sort of jockeying to make much of yourself, you know, have you ever been, I I am a master at turning the conversation ever so slightly that it comes back to me and somebody just happens to mention something. I wouldn't be so bold as to just say, hey, talk about me. Uh, Enough about him. Talk about me. I just, aren't we masters at just throwing a little sort of diversion out there to somehow bring it back to us? I'm uh-oh, I'm, I'm the only one? All right, so we're, we're masters at that. But Paul, Paul says here that there should be this sort of subversive competition in a body of Christ that we should have a competition. We should be fighting with one another to outdo one another in showing honor. That's, what, what, a, what an amazing race that is to outdo one another in showing honor. And then finally, this beautiful verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the writer writes, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us, let us think about, let us, let us connive and have backroom conversations, and let us, let us have phone calls late at night, not to gossip, but to actually consider how we might sneak up on one another and stir each other's hearts towards good works. Love must be primary in the life of a church. All right, let's keep going in verses 4, 6, 7, and 8 now. And then these verses here are just, I think they form the heart of the chapter. They're just this beautiful little description of what love is and what love isn't and then what love is again. So we'll see here two things that love is, then we'll see seven things that love is not, and then five things that love is again. So the, this four, five, six. 7 and 8 sort of form the heart of Paul's thoughts here on love. And he says in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Just think about those two words, patient and kind. And don't don't think about them in a sense that after the end of this message, we're going to kind of reason together to sort of conjure up patience and kindness. Think about how God is these things towards us, friends. This shows the The passive and the active love of God. He's patient towards us. He's gracious. He's merciful. Psalm 145 says that he is slow to anger. Look, friends, one of the heart, one of the core fundamental truths of Christianity is that all of us have sinned and rebelled against God and we deserve his judgment and wrath. God is not sort of up there with a four-leaf clover picking it saying, "He loves me, He loves me not. God is sovereign, God is good, God is providential. Read Isaiah sometime, just as a little meditation one afternoon, and see how great and glorious and sovereign God is. He says things in Isaiah that will blow your mind. He says that I have declared the end from the beginning. Look, The future is not undetermined to God. He's not hoping that things work out. He has worked it out. God is outside of time. And for His glory, the the universe and everything in it is radically God-centered. And for His glory, He has arranged everything it is so that in the end, it will bring about, whether it's judgment of the wicked or salvation of his people, he has brought about everything and is bringing about everything for the glory of his name. When you when you cue into the biblical truth that everything exists for God and not for us, you will line your soul up with the way things are. But here's the point, is that as God is working his ultimate end, which is sure and steadfast, he's Patient with his people, he does not give us what we deserve, but he gives us kindness, so he gives us patience, he withholds, and he gives us kindness and, and because God is like that to us, Paul says we we should be like that to one another and then he gives seven descriptions of what love is not like, what love does not do. Think about these here. this is where i don 't want to overcook it. Just think about just the Really, the evident beauty and clearness of these few sentences. He says, Love does not envy. He doesn't look at the gift that God has given another Christian and covet it. He doesn't look at the state in life of a person who may be more materialistically blessed. He doesn't look at their children and, you know, wish that our kids were little bright little kids achieving in school and, you know, on the travel team. He, he doesn't. Love doesn't envy. Because when it envies, it sort of makes ourself the center of everything. It doesn't boast. It doesn't, as I mentioned, orient conversations so that we might be made much of it. It's humble. It's not arrogant. In other words, it's teachable. It can receive instruction. It reserves the right and the understanding that we are often wrong and that we need each other. I, I, I think to try and do life on your own uh, is just incredibly arrogant. Friends, that's why I think you need to join a local church. I don't care if you've been a Christian. I don't care if your daddy's been a pastor. I don't care all the stuff you know. I mean, I just, it, sometimes when I meet people, it's just they give me these built-in excuses of why they're doing life the way they're doing it. And, and it's just kind of arrogance. That's why we need each other. We need, I need you. You need me. We, we have blind spots. It's not rude. It doesn't doesn't sit in a church service where we talk about Jesus in a scripture and then go to a restaurant and be a jerk to a waitress. It's not doesn't insist on its own way. It's willing to compromise and give in. Even even when sometimes you're right, do you realize just pressing that issue to be right would not be the most helpful thing in that situation? It just it's willing to give. It's not irritable. I'm particularly convicted by that one. It's not easily angered is another way of thinking that. It's not, doesn't, it's not short, it's not resentful. The NIV says it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't fill your holster with little bullets of transgressions, of an ammunition that we can sort of shoot out when we need it most in an argument with our spouse does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Doesn't look at somebody that we maybe have been jealous of, and when they fall or when they stumble, sort of gives us a sort of inner self-satisfaction and a validation of us over them. It doesn't doesn't rejoice at that. But it says there in verse six, it rejoices with the truth. And the truth isn't merely the writing of a wrong here on this temporal earth. It isn't really necessarily the proving of Maybe when we are compared to somebody else, we were right and they were wrong. It rejoices in the truth of the display of the goodness and the glory and the holiness of God, which, friends, we all wilt under. It rejoices in that truth. And then in verse 7, there's this crescendo. There's this climax of what love love looks like. It says in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So look at, look at those four words of, of what love does look like. Bears, believes, hopes, and endures. And, and so I, I want you to kind of see this now. There's the first and the fourth though. Bears and endures are sort of a, a present tense thing that love does right now. It, it, it holds up under the present circumstance. And then the second and third words there that Paul mentioned, believes and hopes, is sort of it's, it's looking towards the future it it 's looking towards this time when everything will be made right, and so love isn 't just a, a present reality but it girds us it' it 's the, it's the sort of tie that binds us to that day when everything will be made right friends see that 's the whole thing about the gospel and Christian faith. It's not just a better way to live. That's why I think the prosperity preachers on TBN are lying to you because they're teaching you to live just for the here and now. Friends, am I saying that Christianity doesn't have helpful things that will help you live better? Yes, of course it does. I'm definitely saying that. But the ultimate deal about this message in the Bible is that it's It's longing. We're longing for this time when God will be clearly magnified and when life will be right and everything will be set in order. As Revelation 21 says, when there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, when everything that is out of order will be wiped away and God will be righteous and His people will be vindicated and everything will be right. So how do we bear and endure not just by conjuring up some good principle of how to live right now but by believing and hoping in that day we sing about it that glorious day friends if if this gospel message has not set in you this hope for the future friends it may not have set in you like it should this past week a young couple in the church had a baby and so I was at the medical center going up to visit them and at the elevator there in the lobby Uh, pressed the button to go up to the fourth floor and the elevator door opened and I was just kind of mindlessly walking along and almost walked into this family and out of the elevator came this beautiful little, she was probably eight, nine or ten, little beautiful girl and she was blind. And she had a little cane that uh, she was using and her dad was holding her hand and guiding her along, and her mom was right behind her. And I looked at her face, and I just saw a beautiful little girl. And she was just walking along. I mean, this is her life. She's probably likely known nothing else but being blind. And just waves of emotion hit me, like, Lord, why, why, why would that little girl be born blind in your providence? I didn't sneak up on God. I have no idea where that family is with Jesus whether or not they're Christians or not, but that didn't sneak up on God. And then I kind of thought, well, why, God, what? But I realized that in that moment as I was kind of wondering, why, why, God, why this beautiful little, just had the face of an angel. And then these verses that i had been meditating on this this week just hit my heart that, that love comes and causes us to be able to bear and endure the things in this life, whether it be some external thing or whether it be some physical trial that we can endure but it points us for. There's coming a day when there will be no more blindness, when there will be no more birth defects, when there will be no more cancer, when there will be no more divorce, when there will be no more sexual temptation, when there will be no more war, when there will be no more al-Qaeda, when there will be no reasons for young lieutenants to leave their wives, for young sergeants and specialists to get shot at. There will be Be no more of that. And friends, if your understanding of Christianity is just for the here and now so that you can live a better life, friends, you are missing the boat. It's terminating on you. There's coming a day, friends, when love, and not just some random notion of love, but the love of God in Christ to make all things right will lift our gaze from this world so that we can endure and hope and believe on that day, that glorious day when he will make all things right, friends. That's what Paul is talking about here, that type of love. Which brings us to the fourth thought that I have, that love is not merely an emotion, but it's a command and a gift. Paul is not, although he does not explicitly state it in these verses, he is not Sending us off into our little corners to conjure up something that we can't give in and of ourselves. He is commanding us. And Jesus in the gospels commands us to love one another. And the reason why Jesus can command us and Paul, his messenger, can command us to give this thing that we cannot produce is because to his people God gives love as a gift. Listen to these words in 1 John. In fact, 1 John would be a wonderful book for you to meditate on to think about the love of God. But let me just read a few verses out of 1 John. He writes in 1 John 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 3, 14, we know, listen to this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not... Love abides in death. Friends, that's why we don't put a big emphasis on altar calls here. Like, we don't want to just say that you're a Christian just because you raised a hand and recited a prayer. Those things may be helpful steps to bring you an understanding of the gospel. But raising a hand or joining a church, those things don't make you a Christian. You will know that you are a Christian by the fruit, by the fruit of love. And so you know that you have passed from death to life. Because of love that's given to you as a gift, because God has brought your dead heart to life through the power of seeing the flame of ultimate love, which is Jesus on the cross. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so there's some implications of that verse, friends. It means that if you have not done that, you are dead. And how does a dead man love? A dead man can't love. It's a gift, friends. That's the scandalous good news of the gospel. The whole message of the Bible is not that you need to do better and muster up self-effort. The whole message of the gospel is that God gives the very thing that He commands. Friends, it's scandalous. It's so good we can't even fathom its truth. And so we scurry off trying to be better. Friends, I, the gospel, any Christian that understands the scriptures is not telling you to be better. It's telling you merely to fall back into the arms of love. It's a gift. He makes dead hearts alive. And he does it through the preaching and the hearing of the gospel. He goes on in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Is that something you conjure up? Love is from God. God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So there's there's a little, little grammar lesson here for you, past tense. So if you love, you have been. It's the result of something that has previously happened in your life. So it's not saying love and then you'll be born again. It says because you've been born again, you will be able to love. Now for some of you, that hits you wrong. Because you, you are you are uh, renowned, well seasoned, like all of us are do-it-yourselfers. You want to do it yourself. You want salvation to be something that you can do. Give me something I can do. Friends, do you realize the futility of that broken mindset? And say you don't like this truth because some of us because it puts salvation totally in God's camp, man. There's nothing what do you mean there's nothing I can do? What do you mean there's not an amount of money I can give? Wait I, I can't donate to the Young Life thing. I can't buy some t-shirts for teen advisors and send this kid to some mission trip. And that's not good enough? No, friends. It's filthy rags, friends. But then you realize when you really click into that how glorious and good and freeing that is. God is the one who saves people. And he does it by making a dead heart alive, alive. And friends, whether God does that for everybody is not our business. That's God's. God is right and good and will do everything well. Our business is when the gospel hits us to in humility, then act on that and respond. That's what the, that's the, friends, that's the message of the gospel. And then he says finally in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. Friends, Paul is not asking us to, Go back and meditate on this scripture and gin up or conjure righteousness. He's saying, "Receive this dead man and come to life." Friends, do you have ears to hear? If you are hearing me, then I believe that as evidence, the Holy Spirit may be making you alive today. And that is evidence that look, you are you are in a process that cannot be stopped trust in Christ. The great theologian of the 4th century, Augustine, said in a prayer to God, grant what you command and command what you will. In other words, God is sovereign over love and everything, and He gives the very thing that He calls for. So don't run off into a corner and try to muster up love drawn to the flame of the only thing that God, the the only one who can provide it. And let God call from you the very thing that he gives you, which is love. I love it. It's said so well by the great Puritan writer, John Bunyan. He says that the law commands us to run and work. And the law is these commandments of scripture that aren't given to bring us really to righteousness the law of god is to bring us to a point of futility so that we realize we can't save ourselves and some of us even though we're christians in 2000 or even though we're people in 2011 we think that the message of christianity is to just to do better friends it's not the law these things that the scriptures tell you to do aren't given in the hopes that you might accomplish them and some select few of people who do get to be christians But no, the law was given to bring us to futility. And so John John Bunyan says the law commands us to run in work, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us wings. In other words, friends, God calls you and commands you to love, and he gives you the heart to do it. He gives us the heart to be these type of people to one another. And then he ends on these verses Eight through the end of the chapter and he says love never ends or fails as for prophecies they will pass away as for tongues they will cease as for knowledge it will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when the perfect comes the partial will pass away let me stop there and say and we will handle this much more um, clearly and slowly in the coming weeks when we talk about tongues and prophecy and why we believe those gifts are still in operation today. Although that's an open-handed issue, I realize many Christians may disagree with that stance that we believe the gifts are still being used by God today. Although we don't believe that this particular gift of tongues is a special marker of any second experience. We don't believe that all Christians are necessarily going to speak in tongues. But, but one of the arguments that people that believe that the gifts have ceased, comes from that verse where it says in verse 10, but when the perfect... So ultimately Paul is saying here is that these gifts are temporary and they're going to pass away, which I would agree with. And, And so when is that time? Well, he says there in verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial, meaning these gifts, will pass away. The church is sort of divided into two camps. Some people think that what Paul is saying there when he says the perfect comes means the Bible, when the Bible is completed and the canon you know, the 66 books of the Bible, that that means that now that the Bible is sort of uh, gathered together, and as we know it, the Bible, then there's no more need for spiritual gifts. I don't think that that's what Paul is meaning there. We'll talk about this more elaborately next week. I think that what Paul is speaking about when he says the perfect comes means Jesus, when Jesus comes that which is partial. In other words, when we're face-to-face, which we'll see here in a second with Jesus, there'll be be no need for spiritual gifts. There'll be no need to prophesy and work a miracle when you're standing in the presence of Jesus. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, meaning here in this age of the church between Jesus and his first coming and his second coming, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face, There's coming a day, not just when the Bible is completed, but there's coming a day when we shall stand before Christ face to face. That's when there will be no need for gifts. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. but The greatest of these is love. So that brings me to my final point there is that, friends, gifts, spiritual gifts are temporary. But love... Is permanent. Love is permanent. The end of chapter 12, Paul calls this way of love a more excellent way. He says, Now I will show you a more excellent way. Friends, are you a Christian? And like me, so often you let things sort of terminate on you. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians. And cross point, to not dead end on ourselves. To love because it's an expression of Christ's love for us. This is the way a church, this is the aroma of Christ. This is the thing that draws people and makes us healthy. Not good music, not decent preaching, not a good facility. It's the way the people treat each other as a display of the gospel. Friends, do we need that stirred in our hearts? Again, I think we do. I think we continually need that to be stirred in our hearts. I think every Christian in this room needs to think about these things and meditate on these things and come closer to the fire so that they might be warmed. Unbelieving friend in this room today, are you aware that you haven't really trusted in Christ? That's a challenge, man. That's a challenge in this place we live in where everybody gets a bulletin from somewhere everybody's got a little bit of history with some church at least most of us do and so we're fooled into believing by this very watered down version of christianity that exists in our culture we're tricked into believing that we are right with god when we're not friends are you just merely a do-it-yourselfer who's sprinkling a little jesus in have you trusted in christ friends i'm not asking you to go do 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 I'm asking you to see that God alone is the one that can give you the heart. The message of the gospel is not to work, it's to rest in love. And if you hear these words, if it's pricking your heart, if it's stirring anything within you, I think that's tremendous evidence that Jesus is giving you ears to hear, as he says in the gospels. So what do you do when you have ears to hear? Do you run and work and do this? No, friends, you you respond, you breathe. You breathe faith. What does the baby do when it comes out of the birth canal? Does it start working on you know, getting ready for kindergarten? No. Babies breathe. That's what they do. And who gave them the lungs to breathe? Did they just create those lungs? Did they go down to the next ward of the hospital and get a set of lungs? No. The father and the mother gave that baby the lungs. How do you even believe, friends? Do you run off and go do some good work? No, you believe because God took your dead heart and gave you a new one. Don't listen to this message about love and walk out of here thinking, I need to be a more loving person. No, friends. No. 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 Rest, fall back in the arms of God who if you're even hearing these words means I believe very strongly it's evidence of the fact that God is passing you from death to life. So breathe, breathe. And you know what that breath should be? It should be turning away from self-trust. Turning away from sin, turning away from self glorification, and turning in faith and belief in Jesus. Looking at what Christ did on the cross. Bearing our sin, removing God's wrath. That's what it means to be a Christian, friends. To look away from yourself and look to Christ. Do you see him now? Look to Christ, the one who bore your sin. Friends, that's all. That's the core. That's what it means to be a Christian. And you can only do that because God has given you a heart to hear that and know that and love that. Friends, do it right now. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from yourself and look to Jesus. Look to him. Who is love, and you will be saved. Let's pray and ask God to stir our hearts. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this incredible chapter. My feeble words cannot do it justice. And so we need this very same Holy Spirit, your very presence that we have been studying in these chapters to come and stir our affections for Jesus. Lord, warm our hearts that the fire of love, which is most clearly seen on the cross, where Jesus in the ultimate act of love, in his perfection, bore the punishment and wrath for our sins and turn that wrath and anger into love. The Lord, stir in the hearts of the people that are Christians in this room the warmth of gazing into the fire of your love. Lord, for the people that are in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, maybe they realize they weren't or they came into this room thinking they were, but by a special grace and gift of your Holy Spirit, you have made them aware of their need for a true faith in you. God, would you give what you command? You're good. That's what you do. You delight. Friends, if you're you're in here today and you think that you're not worthy to be saved, you're absolutely right. See, that's the good news of the gospel. Romans 5. 5. read that later on this afternoon. It says that he he delights in justifying the ungodly. Don't think that this room is made up of a bunch of people who are pretty good that God added to his team because he wanted a a better pickup squad. No, friends, we're all wicked. We're all sprinting to hell. Some of us in public sin, other of us in in inner self-righteousness and idolatry, we're all wicked. God delights in justifying the ungodly. So don't don't coddle your sin and act like it's more powerful than God's ability to save. His arm is not short. His ear is not dull. He's mighty to save. Don't be an idolater even in the way that you consider that your sin is stronger than the cross. It's not, friends. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you're tangled up in right now. God delights in saving broken, wicked people. So God, would you do that right now? Would you hit that dead, scared, heart would you give it life and faith and love so that my friend in this room today who came in an unbeliever came in dead can turn from their self and sin and trust in themselves and they can turn in faith towards you God would you be so good as to give that gift right now for somebody friend if that's you right now just look to Jesus breathe I'm not going to ask you to repeat a prayer or fill out a card God doesn't need some sort of human action to validate or close the deal. Breathe right now. Breathe. Breathe. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus. You're becoming a Christian right now if you're doing that. You are, you're passing from life to death right now in an instant. Breathe. Love. Love Jesus. Love him more than your sin. Love him more than that wickedness. Love him more than that Friday night. Love him more than that money. Love him more than trusting in yourself. Love him more than a secure future. Love him. Lord, would you do that? Would you give that gift for your glory and our joy? And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.